Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Zero Books and Repeater Media. I'm Craig from the Asset Horizon podcast. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Enrico Monicelli, author of The Great Psychic Outdoors, Lo-Fi Music and Escaping Capitalism. Out now on Repeater Books, the question, how has the aesthetics of an impoverished sound image and the DIY ethos familiar to what we would call lo-fi music how has it been able to conjure portals between the capitalist hellscape and the lingering horizon of a future beyond capitalism itself? Who are and have been artists that are and have been the harbingers of hope heralding the new through the homegrown hiss and warble of a shambling Porta Studio four track? Enrico joins us today to talk about his new book, both a genealogy of and a journey into the legacy of degraded sound. And Enrico, thank you for coming on the channel today. Thank you very much. Long-time fan, first-time caller, so All right. I'm very honored to be here. Feels good to hear that. Oh, let's talk lo-fi. I've been doing these kinds of interviews for about three years now, and it's not uncommon to come upon the claim, like the one that you're making right now, that a particular genre or a style of music affords us a chance to either forge a new community or create this kind of rupture in the current cultural fabric that allows us to discover new intensities, or these things can become a catalyst for something revolutionary. And as a fan of certain lo-fi recordings myself, I maintain a peculiar bias in favor of this conjecture. But perhaps you can begin by talking about what has allowed you to think about lo-fi music in conjunction with this idea of escaping capitalism, and what was then the impetus to write this book? Sure, sure. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly the, the, the first question that came to me when I decided to write a book on lo-fi. I, I kind of asked myself, what is so radical about lo-fi? What makes it a viable option for all of those who desire a world be, beyond capitalism, beyond the one we've got? And the answer came to me when I studied thinking about lo-fi outside of the boundaries of the genre and the calcified idea of what lo-fi actually is. When I started looking at lo-fi as a practice, it became kind of an, an obsession of mine because lo-fi presented itself as the most cyberpunk sort of ethos that we've got to confront the way we produce music. One of the things that I think it's quite important to understand and to get into my book is the idea to sort of go beyond the idea that lo-fi is a naive genre or a genre made of simpler, more authentic tunes and recorded in simpler ways. I actually believe that lo-fi is the only genre we've got that is so obsessed with the music production and the ways in which we produce the sounds that it sort of gives us a critical perspective on the whole studio industrial complex. It is a genre that is obsessed with the way we make music and therefore it's the best way to sort of approach how music is made under capitalism. It's the most critical music you, you, you can have at least in my opinion. And, and that's sort of the, the thing that made it stood, stood out to me. The thing that, that made me say, okay, this is worth writing about because it is a genre that it's able to conjure this sort of like escape from the normal conditions under which a pop song is made 
by hacking the mainframe in a sense, going straight to the wires and, and, and the way that a song is made like directly. So yeah, if I had to sort of give an abridged version of what I think is so radical about lo-fi, what sort of intensities, intensities it conjures, I'd say precisely this. It is the most cyberpunk genre. It is a genre against the way we produce music. It's a, it's a practical critique. Interesting. You know, take a take a sip of beer or have a shot every time I say Boards of Canada during this particular podcast. <laughs> but it recalls, for me, it makes me think about something Boards of Canada said once in an interview, or at least a practice that they had, or a proclivity that they had, which was to take something that had a stereo image and collapse it into mono. And there's something that's that's kind of interesting and, and even transgressive about it in the sense, you know, we live in the time where there's now this competition for loudness, a competition mm-hmm. for, you know, the stereo field complexity, like I think of the whole wall of sound phenomenon and how that's evolved over decades now. What for you, you know, or what is it at the level of sense and affect that you believe happens when one either consumes or produces lo-fi art? And how do you think this brings to bear upon a political sensibility antagonistic to the kinds of lives that are produced under capitalism? I I like that you quoted Boards of Canada right away because I think it sort of gave me an out to, to, to answer your question because what really strikes me in their music is sort of the physicality in a sense of of sound, you have this. It's not just you know the the very banal idea that it's more rustic, as opposed to I don't know Affix Twin or Onetrix Point Never. But the thing that really strikes me is this this strife to bring forth the the very actual matter of the sound itself. You can hear the recording process. So the thing that I find like most interesting in the way sort of lo-fi feels, both as a listener and as a musician, is precisely this sort of kinship with the machine, with the physicality of the music production. Again, what in in one of the chat book, I talk about our Stevie Moore, that was one of the sort of great outsider of American indie music and i think that the the thing that it's most interesting about him is the way in which he was able to sort of record the entirety of his existence releasing like 400 records or something like that and the the most interesting thing of of them all it's how in each and every record you can sort of hear the room you can hear the the mechanism in a sense that go that that is going on behind the song and one of the points that i do that that i make in that chapter is this idea that our stevie moore was able to speak his mind to be absolutely sincere and and personal precisely because of this kinship with the machine so i think that there's basically an, an effective continuity between this kinship with uh, the microphones or, or whatever and the possibility of exploring new forms of expressions because of course if you sort of jailbreak the methods of producing a pop song you can sort of reclaim 
the contents of your life that are normally excluded from, you know, a mainstream charting song. So there's this capacity in taking back the the sounds of conjuring this this other selves in a sense this capacity of reclaiming the the expressive potentialities of these same machineries so i think that that at the end of the day the answer cannot be univocal it cannot be you know the sensibility or the affects of lo-fi music or this or that because there are a, mon- a multitude of ways one can repurpose the the sonic production of a pop song but at the same time the baseline remains always the same once you sabotage the way things are supposed to go about you can discover new sensibilities and new ways of sort of approaching the the production of not only music but of, of a self through music so I, I believe that that's the that's probably but that but that's probably also a very personal question because I think at, at the end of the day it's it's also my own personal way of approaching lo-fi but it's something that I wouldn't want to, to take out of the equation because it's still this sort of critical potentiality that it had in me and that I would like to reproduce and see if other feels the the same way when I was presenting the book here in, in Milan, I had the chance of talking with Giacomo Stefanini of the hardcore punk band, which comes from a totally different milieu. But what surprised me is even if they're dealing with very different forms of the expression from the one I talk about in the book, there was this sort of baseline of sort of understanding one another when we say that repurposing the machine gives you an out to, to become something other, something completely different. So, so yeah, I think, again, I think it's a very personal sort of one-to-one experience with lo-fi music, but it's also something that I, that I think it's worth communizing and, and seeing where it goes. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about the idea of the personal versus the individual. This is something that really came up for me when I read your book. But just to offer a personal anecdote, I started producing music almost 25 years ago. And one of the first platforms that I used was a, a DAW, Desktop Audio Workspace, called Sony Acid 3.0. <laughs> I, I don't know if anybody who's listening remembers this. But th- th- this is one of the early ones, like around the era of Fruity Loops or something mm-hmm. like that. Sure. And I mean, I think that the name Acid is ironic against what we're we're talking about here today. But what I thought was interesting was, I mean, those are digital platforms in a way that digital music kind of democratized production. It put it in in more consumers' homes. But what has been interesting about my own personal lineage in producing music is I kind of gravitated towards lo-fi, ultimately getting into hardware, and very recently actually acquiring a somewhat sought-after, not very expensive, but maybe expensive for what it is, a Library of Congress C1 tape player, which has this like this very unique sort of lo-fi warble quality that a lot of electronic musicians like Boards of Canada would be mm-hmm. very much into. and. I think you're right to say that, you know, the physicality of the machine itself, 
and also the the inherent limitations of the machine. The, the, it's almost like we're we're encountering the real in some sense. Like even the play and eject button on that have very different and distinct feels on it. Not to mention the sound that it produces is in some sense quite limited and very difficult to control. And there's a way in which that you as 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 the user of the machine need to be sensitive to the, to its its capacities and its limitations and i think this is one of the profound things about lo-fi music is really understanding the lo-fi machine as a kind of body without organs you know as, oh. as gary might say but i i think you know we can talk more about that later but i'm curious about this idea of escaping capitalism what is it about lo-fi music the image the sound image of lo-fi music itself that affords us this escape mm -hmm. yeah the, the sort of theory backdrop of this idea um is mainly to be found in paolo virno's work Virno was an autonomist and sort of an heretical Marxist, let's put it this way. And at some point during his elaboration of, 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 of his theories, he started to claim that a social revolution, even on, on, on an enormous scale, could only be imagined as a sort of exodus, as people taking their lives and almost literally going elsewhere maybe not physically, not literally moving, but sort of deserting their, their previous existence. And an example which I found extremely, extremely fitting for my analysis of lo-fi music was his idea that a social exodus, like this sort of revolution as escape, can only begin if and only if we started to repurpose our labor force in different ways. What he says in, 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 in his work is that a lot of the most vibrant contribution that, I don't know, the student movement or the feminist movement gave to critical theory was the idea of taking our lives back through doing labor differently in a very sort of qualitative sense, like take the machines and stop working for your boss or for whatever, start working for your community, sort of a big sort of collective sabotage. And I think that it's, that escape is the only word that cut it when it comes to this sort of theory, because it is not just sort of taking power from the state, but it's a sort of impetus to start living in a completely different way. It's this like psychedelic vision of repurposing one's life from the ground up, which, which can only be imagined really by sort of fleeing your previous existence, by sort of leaving behind this carcass of your old habits and, and the way you used to run your life. And I think that sadly escape as a concept in broader sort of theory circles has sort of a bad rap because most of the time it is associated with like escapism or not wanting to confront the i don't know class struggles or or, or important issues like that but i don't think that that's the case at all on the contrary it is sort of bringing the, the social clashes to to its like ultimate conclusion and seeing there's no reconciling with the way the world runs right now there's only like 
carving difficultly and painfully a way out of it. And I know I've, I've, I've sort of like, I'm talking with an, an expert of escape and escape theory. So, so, so I'm sort of like going on this tangent because I know I have a crowd that will not sort of push back against it. But I'm also like, I'm very fascinated. There, there's a book that just came out here in Italy by Franco Bifo Berardi that it's called Desert, like as like deserting an army and things like that. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm very like happy to see like this idea of like desertion as a radical way of engaging with with capital gaining momentum because it is like probably one of the 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 strongest like after the whole accelerationism thing in the 2010s and the interest for like escape and exit but which was still very much framed in this logic of the only way out is through it is refreshing to see now the idea of escape being sort of moused by Marxist critics, or or at least coming from an heretical and Deleuzian lineage of Marxism. So yeah, I think that that there is no contradiction between like wanting to escape and wanting to overthrow capitalism. It is the same practice in, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm completely with you. I was actually very fond of Virno's writings in graduate school, and in fact, I would credit my reading of Virno as being part of this turn towards this notion of escape. I mean, just a little sneak preview of our book, Anti-Oculus, A Philosophy. One of the ways that we think, rethink, not just Deleuze and Guattari, but Deleuze's early work, even as early as Difference and Repetition, as the impetus for any sort of revolutionary or insurrectionary action begins with this notion of refusal, the refusal of an image of thought. And I think the very basis of dehabituation, desubjectivation, the creation of the kind of plane of consistency that's going to create the kinds of communities that will bring about the new requires this incipient refusal of mm-hmm. the world as it is. And so, yes, I am with you on the fact that escapism merely isn't an act of cowardice. In fact, it's probably the preeminent act of courage in some ways, because we need to have that that moral courage to overcome all of those intensities, all of those impetuses that 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 bring us back into the system. And I mean, we assert that the, you know, the the sort of fundamental act or gesture that that one must make before undertaking like even a utopian project requires this refusal. Which then brings us, of course, to Deleuze and Gattari, who is one of the 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 first and important mediators in your theory of lo-fi. And I was very happy to see it at the beginning of the book, because not only do we see Gattari as this sort of harbinger of molecular revolutions, but you associate him as a figure associated with real lo-fi insurrections during years of lead, right? And you reflect upon his teenage son's affinity for DIY radio, which in the eyes of Gattari himself, Felix Gattari, that is, that that constituted a real politics of resistance also and it also evidenced the which we could also see in the proliferation of free radio in italy italy during that time could you perhaps offer us a vignette of that moment in history and why italy's autonomous movement stands out to you as a, as an important note in your theory of lo-fi yeah absolutely when i 
sort of encounter that bit of, of course, being like Italian and born and raised here, I was always vaguely aware of the history of insurrections and critical thinking in my country. But I never thought I would go there with my book on lo-fi because, of course, it, it seems very distant in a sense. But I was looking for sort of a, a way to narrativize the concepts that I was bringing forth in, in my book. And out of desperation, I was reading Gattari because it's it, it was also part of my PhD. So it was part of a wider reading that I was doing at the time. And at one point, I stumbled on this interview, which is amazing because it like it's basically my book condensed in a, in a few pages. And at the end of the interview, he basically says, well, my, my son, he's not into politics. He doesn't like the state, but he's not like into critiquing and doing like this formal political gestures that are often associating with political engagement overall. What he does though, is creating, is, is, is building free radios with his soldering iron. So what he says is through this act of taking the airways by storm with this minuscule project of his, he's doing politics by other means. He's taking the power out of the hands of the state and back to the listeners and the people that will collaborate with him. So this gestures with, which might seem small in comparison to like big utopian projects are actually for Qatari this sort of the, the beginning of this anti-political, he says, movement outside the grasp of the state. So what he's saying is basically, again, my big lo-fi argument that taking back the machines has like this capability of making you other. So and, and from there, I was like, okay, this is very, it's a very fun example. I can use it in the book. But then I started looking into whether Gattari has wrote anything other on, on like free radios and, and things like this. And, and, and of course he did, because he was enmeshed with this movement that took Europe, but especially Italy, by storm at the time of free radios. The example that I make in the book is Radio Alice, which is possibly the most famous one, also because Franco B, the aforementioned Franco Bifo Berardi was involved in Radio Alice and he often spoke about it. But it was also the one that had the biggest impact on the, the Italian unconscious, so to speak, the Italian political unconscious. Because Radio Alice had this very aggressive, militant image. It was broadcast through this equipment which was stolen apparently from like uh, World War II remnants. It was like a military radio that was broadcasting through Bologna and the studio was open to the public. So it was like the street continuing inside the studio itself. It was like this big sort of movement on its own, this like molecular insurrection happening in one room. And it was violently shut down at some point. And its shutdown itself is quite fascinating because it 
stood as a document of sort of the end of that period of political uproar because it was recorded and broadcast throughout. So we can still hear the, the moment it was shut down, which again, I think it's a testament of how correct Gattari was in his assessment of, of, of free radios and in general, the idea of broadcasting through other means. Because I think that what is most fascinating about Radio Riccia is the fact that it was also able to broadcast what it what is usually outside the, the scope of what can be shown to the public, what can be heard. So it is, in fact, a sort of a testament of the strength of doing doing it yourself in a in a in a very in a very basic sense because it it, it gave them the possibility to broadcast the unbroadcastable the the ultimate sort of document witnessing the violence of the state against what was basically an innocent an innocent art project and and another thing that I think that it's quite interesting is that this. Radio Alice experiment perfectly ties back to our current interest in the 60s and more generally in psychedelic culture, because they were doused in this like very ironic and prankster-esque sort of psychedelia. They they started their broadcasting by playing Jefferson Airplane. And their name, of course, is from like White Rabbit. So this idea of rabbit going through the other side. And I think it is fascinating because in a sense, it pre, it, 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 it sort of came, it anticipated our current interest in psychedelic modes of thinking in these sort of the, the whole acid communist project. They were sort of living and dying by it because their idea was this production of a completely new utopic space outside the grasp of capital and the state. So, so yeah, since my book was basically an offshoot of the acid communist fragment by Mark Fisher, this whole thing sort of tied together by itself, giving me everything I needed through Gattari and through Radio Nietzsche. And it sort of launched the book through its like, obvious conclusion in, in a sense. But it's it's still interesting because at, at the end of the day, Radio Alicia was a lo-fi project. It was lo-fi the way it was broadcasted and, and recorded. Therefore, it, even if it is like a hyper-political example of, of lo-fi music, something that most lo-fi music isn't, it is still sort of sort of giving an historical antecedent to 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 my own argument, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's profound thinking about Radio Alicia. And actually, for me, hearing that for the first time from an Italian person's mouth, you know, I, me being the crass Anglophone, Radio Alice is the way that I read it. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's just incredible to think that that was a, a subversive activity, you know, against today's world of podcast milieu. Can, can you imagine like six black Chevy Suburbans pulling up and yanking me out of the chair right now for having this conversation? Yeah. You know, it seems that was, a, a, you know, a much different world. But actually, before 12 people in the YouTube comments asked for the name of the essay or the name of the interview where Gatari talks about his son where can we find that and, and what are some of the other resources that that uh, the interview is from molecular revolution i think oh, molecular revolutions okay the and semi I think, 
right? No, wait, let, let, me, let me check. Okay. It's, yeah, all right. It may not be the case. <laughs> yeah, I know there's actually various versions of the book too. No, it's from soft subversions. As I mentioned earlier, the, the word that comes up for me when reading this book, I mean, I see it in the introduction and when you talk about Daniel Johnston in particular, is this word personal, which there's a way that I understand the definition of the word personal, or at least a connotation of the word personal as being distinct from the concept of individual. And perhaps the importance of the personal dimension of our collective experience of music is not exclusive to any particular genre of music, but through your lens, the, the lo-fi lens, it, the, it seem, lo-fi seems to embody this ethos, which is distinctly personal in some ways, given the nature of the encounter with lo-fi recordings, either as a consumer or producer. I mean, just think of the bedroom producer, for example, mm-hmm. making their record on the Porta Studio 424 or something like that. And this might be evidence, as I said, in, in the life of somebody like Daniel Johnston, whose artistic success is largely attributable to the work that he did out of his own home. And it's arguable too, that once he you know, was cast into the limelight, we didn't see a, a reproduction of, of, of the quality of his music. Do, do you think that's an adequate characterization of, of how we imagine lo-fi music? Like, well, what do you think is the connection between the personal dimension or the sort of private mm. dimension of the experience with the collective experience of escaping capitalism? Well, this is, this is, an extremely interesting question because there's there's this arrogance when you write a book where where you believe you're sort of the master and you control everything there is in the book. But you're right that the personal dimension is very much central to the book, even though I didn't want it to be in a sense, because as I was sort of ditching the whole idea that lo-fi is a naive or more authentic or rustic genre. I was also ditching the the idea that lo-fi was sort of this like weirdo music for very private people. But it isn't but I think that there is something to that dimension, something to that sort of stereotype that reflected back also on the kind of book I wanted to to write and from in the perspective I, I wrote the book from. Because jokingly, when I was talking about the book as I was writing it, and as soon as it came out, I was saying that my book is not really theory and it's not really music journalism. It's more fan theory. Because I honestly believe that the book, one of the 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 biggest appeal, I don't know how to, to call it, one of the strongest point, I think, of the book is that it is written from a, a fan perspective. It is driven mostly by passion and theory sort of follows and tries to give a form to the, the, the sort of unrequited love I have for lo-fi music and lo-fi culture and the community around it. So there's definitely this sort of like very personal take on, on on lo-fi and it reflects also on this obsession over the inwardness of these characters this sort of like very affect heavy musicians 
that were very much in tune with this sort of with this personal space they were carving out for themselves this sort of utopian little island they were building to to make their music function but one thing that i would certainly criticize in the idea of the personal is well not criticize but i would like to to sort of move it way far from the far away from the the sort of idea that it means to be individual or individualized in a sense because one of the reasons why i chose to write a book from a fan perspective is that i believe that the fan perspective is probably one of the most collective an unselfish position one can have under like consumer capitalism because the fan is almost by definition part of a crowd part of someone part of like this mass of people enjoying something together and it and it felt like that for me that every time i was i don't know workshopping a chapter i was always doing that with people i knew or into lo-fi with this very like fan passion. So one of the reasons why, for example, at one moment there was, I was debating which should be like the, the very first author I would be talking about. And the, my biggest fear was letting down this like bunch of like people that were telling me, no, you have to start from Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney is the four first lo-fi musician so this sort of like back and forth with with other fans was sort of the drive that made me build the book but yeah the the important bit is that fan fandom is a personal perspective in so much as personal is part of a wider collective this sort of trans individual position where you're part of this sort of affects that navigate throughout the the this crowd originally i'm I'm william james scholar and when you when you were talking about the personal something that came back to me was like the way he dealt with like mystical experiences and and he the, the the over like the the barest bone of the argument was that we should not sort of excise any form of personal experience out of our philosophies and the way we deal with what is actually important in our in our lives and like theoretical lives so the the overall thing that like and the reason why it came back to me because a lot of this like personal perspective i was talking about both as an object of my study and my own perspective on lo-fi felt most of the time like a very mundane and secular form of sort of mystic disembodiment and i did not want to excise that sort of experience from my writing of lo-fi and writing lo-fi well i mean in my case the lo-fi music that i have produced in my life and in fact among the albums and eps that i have out most of them i would call like a lo-fi ambient drone project i i think even the music itself in that case lends itself to a kind of meditation almost on the level of navel gazing because it's almost like you're creating this kind of audio zoetrope where you get into this space 
And it creates this bubble of affect that allows you to process the world in a very different way. And this can probably, this probably happens with all kinds of lo-fi music, you know, from punk, you know, even industrial or something like that. But what, what strikes me as interesting is, you know, the fact that you're coming from this, this fan perspective, a fan theory, it's almost a way of conceiving of a, a minor philosophy or a minor aesthetics. Mm in a certain way, which does not mean an inferior aesthetics by any mean. In fact, one of the figures that you take on in the book or, or that you say who is motivating this is Michel Foucault mm-hmm. and the idea of a genealogy, that you're conducting a genealogy of lo-fi music. And you also cite Jean-Luc Nancy, and the overlap between Nancy and Foucault in this case is the difficulty in identifying an origin to the beginning of one study. And maybe there's something distinct about why the genealogical method is, quote unquote, the right method to do a theory of lo-fi. I mean, what does a Hegelian theory of lo-fi look like? An absolute, <laughs> like, this will be the final. <laughs> but I'm curious about this choice. Well, why do you choose Foucault? Like, maybe you can explain a little bit what Foucault's genealogical method is and how, how does it apply to your study of lo-fi? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Foucault for me was a way to confront one of my biggest fear coming into the project, which was writing like the definitive history of lo-fi, writing, I don't know, the Our Band Could Be Your Life of lo-fi music. I didn't want to do that because there was... (laughs) There was like this underlying fear, first of all, that I was unable to do that, But secondly, and probably most importantly, the idea that like one unitary history of lo-fi music would sort of calcify what's important about lo-fi and make it like an object which unfolds linearly and goes from point A to point B and point C and develops this like internal reason and whatnot. And these were all things I wanted to avoid at, at any cost. In, in in my book because I think that the biggest potential of lo-fi music and that's something which came up talking not only to you but with a lot of other people is the fact that when I say lo-fi music a lot of people think a lot of different things there's like no one lo-fi music there's a vast array of genres that fall under the, the lo-fi category so Foucault sort of came as an aid to my unwillingness to write this like overarching history of lo-fi music. Foucault's genealogical method, again, putting it very simply, it's a method according to which you do not go looking for the continuities in history, but you seek out the points of rupture where one paradigm gives way to another. So you do not look for a history that is linear, that is rational, even that it that excludes like any sort of hiccup or very like disruptive event. And instead you go looking for a history that it's composed basically all of like breaking points and differences and moments of, of, of rupture, so to speak. So it is, a non-conservative, non-linear way of making history, in a sense. Not not making history, but making like a narrative of how, I don't know, power unfolded in 
this or that century. And of course, this perspective gave me the possibility to treat lo-fi not as sort of a linear unfolding, but as a broken sets set of different artists doing wildly different things, following wildly different agendas, but unified by this willingness to sabotage the whole studio industrial complex. So what sort of Foucault is not very present in the book. I mean, Foucault finishes off the book actually, but it is only present in so far as it gave me a theoretical justification of why I was, I, I was not writing a Hegelian history <laughs> of lo-fi. <laughs> it was, it was my way of saying this will not be, everything there is to lo-fi, but it's a very partisan perspective. And it will highlight mostly the differences and not like how things hang together. And and you do mention also at the beginning of the book that there's a relative paucity of lo-fi theory and that which exists out there mostly concerns like visual lo-fi, the the mm-hmm. degraded visual image. But d- despite that, I, I'm curious because... You know, when I think of Mark Fisher's concept of hauntology, I mean, the first thing I'm thinking of is is actually the music and, you know, recycled retro, low fidelity cultural repetitions, you know, Mark Fisher's interest in ghost box records. And then, you know, folks like Boards of Canada, who we we talked about, Quartet, (laughs) Casino versus Japan, like these labels from the past, Folktronica, Nostalgitronica you know, all of these kinds of music that, you know, try to induce this dreamlike delirium we might associate with the hauntological. But with all that in mind, how do you see your theory of lo-fi music against this concept of hauntology? Are there points of departure? Are there points of intersection? What do you think? Yeah. Well, my book is certainly a Mark Fisher-heavy book. In many senses, it is, it is a continuation of many threads that Mark left in his work. So there's, there was definitely the question for me. I mean, in the beginning, I wanted to talk about ontology quite explicitly throughout the book. But I was a little terrified of the idea that that would sort of give a certain image of, of lo-fi and it would sort of put lo-fi in a box of being this very nostalgic music obsessed with retro techniques of production, which I don't believe is the case. I was talking to a dear friend of mine who was also a, a musician. And at one point he was sort of talking about the ways in which lo-fi recordings are done and he he blocked me. He blocked the whole thing we were talking about by saying, well, most of the things I record that I consider lo-fi are recorded on my phone. <laughs> and I think it is the case for a lot of very up-and-coming bedroom producers that they may not be recording literally on their phone, but there is definitely a very contemporary feel to the machinery they use. It's mostly recording through computers and through cracked softwares and things like that. So I wanted to to give an image of lo-fi which was able to do away with nostalgia, to to be 
on, on the offensive most of the time and taking to the to the account the fact that things are changing and things have changed and a lot of culture have has moved forward from from the sort of very ontologically inclined world we were living in in the 2010s and there's and 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 I wanted to to sort of st- sidestep the whole question but I also believe that ontology does play a big role in a lot of the lo-fi imagination i was thinking about because of course i was getting ready for the boards of canada onslaught and i cannot imagine a better record for like a theory for like an, an auditory theory of capitalist realism than tomorrow's harvest it is one of the most desolate records i can can think of so there is definitely this sort of like when I was writing the book, I wanted to sort of exclude or sidestep the question because I wanted to be on the offense all the time. But there is definitely a sort of sneaking suspicion in me that I missed out on a lot of good things that lo-fi has done to convey a certain malaise and the sort of like temporal sickness we are experiencing under capitalism. Case in point, again, Another example, I think, is like the books that I was revisiting right now, the, the Folktronica bands. They're not actually lo-fi, but they are sort of like found, they sort of have an interest in like sound from the past in a, in a very like broad sense of the term. And, and, and yes, there's, there's definitely a strong feeling that a lot of that music is giving away an interesting sort of sonic theory of our present condition. But I also believe that my book is very much anti-hontological in a sense. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up Tomorrow's Harvest because, I mean, when we think about hauntology and even the concept of capitalist realism, I don't think any title better captures, you know, the promise of capitalist realism than Tomorrow's Harvest. And even probably the the, the strongest track on that album, which is called Reach for the Dead, which mm-hmm. leads you to ask, who is reaching for whom? There's a way in which our reach towards the hauntological is a kind of reach for the dead, but mm-hmm. yet something else is reaching for us as well. It's kind of a, a dual reach in some sense. But, you know, that this brings up another interesting point about the current state of lo-fi as it's understood, at least in terms of the simulacra or the simulacrum of lo-fi, you know, whether it's through guitar pedals, virtual instruments, virtual effects, even in some of the pop songs. I mean, I mean, how many times since the 2010s has the Motown sound been recreated, for example, you know, that sort of shimmery reverb, not to mention, you know, I've ripped off Boards of Canada, who hasn't sort of doing this thing. And now there's a whole industry, a whole capitalist industry behind producing the sound. And it's almost ridiculous that one would spend anywhere between $500 and $2,000 for a computer that's capable of producing probably the highest quality album possible out there today, but so many young people reaching back for that degraded sound. I mean, I mean, to me, it just seems like capitalist recuperation at work, but do you think that the advent or the proliferation of those technologies diminish the liberatory prospects that lo-fi holds for us in some sense? Like where's the in-between there? Yeah, there is, there is, definitely something to be said about a sort of fetishization of 
of lo-fi in, in, in our current condition, because it, it is indeed true that a lot of music is unnecessarily lo-fi in a sense, or it's willingly lo-fi better, because it is very much more of an aesthetic choice than something born out of necessity. And it is indeed a paradox to have like a super expensive computer to record something that feels like it's been recorded on a potato or something like that. But there's, I think there's the, the thing that it's important to keep in mind is that as far as I'm concerned, lo-fi is still mostly a tactic and not a genre. So what I think it's interesting about this sort of repurposing of lo-fi in non-lo-fi conditions is the this, this sort of unwillingness to look under the hood, in a sense. The thing that scares me the most <clears throat> about a software that reproduces a sort of degraded effect, a, a retro effect, is not so much the fact that it's fake, because I don't want to use the authenticity jargon. I think it, it would be kind of dumb. But it's the a sort of fear that it will put people in the position of not looking at the machine in a creative way. So I'm not very much concerned about sort of the, the inauthenticity of the contemporary lo-fi sound. I'm way more afraid of the fact that a software could sort of cut out the whole hacker, the, the hacker ethos of putting one's hand into the machine itself. So looking how the software works or how the computer itself works and repurposing it, sabotaging it even to make it work otherwise. You said before that we probably have the biggest possibilities in human history to actually produce the, the, the best sounds ever with the easiest and, and, and most available means ever. But what I think it's even more interesting is that we have the possibilities, the possibility of producing basically inconceivable sound for previous generations. And I wouldn't want to see those possibilities snuffed out of existence because we sort of take for granted the machines that we are using. One of the examples that I, that it's not lo-fi at all, but which could be very good, a very good exemplification of the sort of like sabotaging ethos is as far as I'm concerned, Sophie, because a lot of that sort of music production was very much hands-on on the machine, on the programming and basically aimed at, produce, at producing the strangest sound a pop song could fit. And that is a very good example of the sort of lo-fi ethos I tried to sort of sketch out in my book. And it's not lo-fi, but because I don't think it really matters the quality of the production. It's more the relationship you have with certain machines and certain ways of making songs and sounds. Now, here comes the big question, the important yeah. question. In fact, when folks knew that I was going into this interview today, they said, you're certainly going to ask Enrico about lo-fi <laughs> beats to study to or relax to. Right? And this, this ubiquitous phenomenon of the lo-fi beat, 
one, you know, on the one hand, we'll paint two pictures here. One, you know, this sort of, you know, kind of like loungy bedroom sound that helps you get through the night. It actually helps us, helps you, you know, get through that paper that you're working on, study for that calculus two exam or or whatever. On the other side, we got this ontological flatness, this sterility. And, and one of the complaints that we hear about lo-fi beats or lo-fi beats to study to is, you know, oh, do you know how stuff, how easy it is to produce this stuff? Or, you know, it's just the kind of same thing over and over again. I mean, it's arguable that lo-fi beats to study to, there's somebody who's going to be working at Lockheed Martin next year at this time, who's using lo-fi beats to study to, to get through whatever exams or tests they need to get through to get the skills that they need. I'm curious, like where you stand, like where where does your theory of lo-fi fit in with this ubiquitous phenomenon? Yeah, this, this, this phenomenon has been haunting me since like the day I decided to write a book on lo-fi. There is one anecdote I want to put out there because I think it was one of the best thing that happened in this like promotional cycle. I was hanging out at like this bar for a lecture for, for, for like an event. And I was talking to a friend of a friend and, and, and the book comes out and like pops up as a, as a topic. And, and he asked me, Oh, what, what is it? What is it about? And I was like, yeah, it's about lo-fi music. And immediately he goes like, oh, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Plus, it's it's it's, it's such a new genre. And I, <laughs> and I look at him and I was like, sort of, I mean, in a sense. And I ask him, what is your favorite artist? And I'm not lying. He straight, like with the straightest face ever, he, he's like, lo-fi girl. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's that's cool. But I think that in that sort of, earnestness in saying that lo-fi girl was his favorite artist there's in a, a very strong image of what it what lo-fi means right now because a lot of people associate lo-fi music with this sort of production of very like basically identical beats over very smooth loungy sounds and and whatnot and my sort of theory about it is quite simple. First off, it sucks. And that's my that's my take on it. First, folks. <laughs> Secondly, and more theoretically, I think it is quite dangerous because it, it is both mood music and productivity music. Right. Yeah. It is music basically meant to enhance your ability to function in the capitalist market and that's the polar opposite of what i wanted to to write about the lo-fi music i I was talking about was disruptive psychedelic this sort of like very combative ethos and lo-fi beats to study and relax to is the absolute opposite i couldn't think of something like further from from what i wanted to to write about so yeah, that's that's I think that I think is all I have to say. Well, I have to agree with you. I think there's something about the lo-fi beats phenomenon that definitely enhances and upholds the delirium behind the productivist mindset. There's no doubt about it. But maybe I'm a little bit more of a right wing on the right wing <laughs> of lo-fi here, in the sense that like 
it's kind of, you know, as Deleuze and Guattari would say, it's the little bit of subjectivity in my pocket. Like when I need to get down and focus on something for an hour, I won't lie to you. I have put it on the background. I confess. I don't know if there's a gulag for lo-fi beats, but I'll be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're almost, we're, man, I, I have a couple more questions, but maybe I'll just ask like one more sort of bigger question for the end of the interview. And that's, that has to do with acid communism. And I mean, you talk about several figures in your book. You talk about Brian Wilson, R. Stevie Moore, but I'd like to focus on the bit that you write about Daniel Johnston mm-hmm. and his acid communism. And I, I, I thought it was interesting because there's a way in which, oh, you say that he's like this acid communist avant lalette, you know, that, well, here's my challenge is like, given that, that Johnston had this sort of like fairly like Manichaean Christian worldview, you know, he, he viewed the world world in terms of good and evil. And you, you suggest that he had this sort of political theology that not only infused his life, but his music as well. How is that the case? And, and what, what is the intersection here, the connection to Mark Fisher's acid communism? And, and maybe you'll have to give us a short biography of Daniel Johnston's life in order to do sure. that. Sure. Yeah, let's start with the bio- biography first, because I think that Daniel Johnston is, is, is quite interesting, mostly because he comes from a very religious background. He was raised in a very Christian household. He himself, I think that he called it either integralist or, or something to that effect. And despite the fact that, of course, being born and raised, I was born and raised Catholic in a you know, fairly strict house. So, so my first like instinctive move was to distance myself from Christianity and, and that sort of world. Daniel Johnston, on the contrary, he took it up as one of the main themes of his music. His songs are literally like full of God and angels and and whatnot. It's it's there's there's one song that is basically the recreation of the the Book of Genesis in like a three minute track. And therefore, I found myself in the position of asking myself, what's revolutionary about this? Because I was sure that Daniel Johnson was a revolutionary figure. And so the way I went about it was to construct for Daniel Johnston, because Daniel Johnston was not sort of a systematic political theological thinker, but I constructed for him this sort of political theology that rests upon love and hope and evil as the three main pillars. Evil is this world, the boredom of this world, the way it sort of sucks out your creative energy and and, and all that. And love and hope are the things that move you forward. Love is this sort of like vision of a world beyond this. And hope is the certainty that this world can actually exist at some point. What I think it's, and the reason why I decided to take this political theology and claim that it was a form of acid communism stems from the fact that Mark Fisher himself 
quoting Marcuse, was very much keen on the idea that acid communism did not have to be an intentional project all the time. It didn't have to be this sort of like very bureaucratic party-like mentality where everyone has to fall in line with the ideology or else you're not an actual acid communist. He claimed that a lot of acid communism stemmed from the raw intensity of certain songs or cultural artifacts that were able to able to embody this like voice from the outside as he calls it and i believe that there is no one more more suitable for this sort of embodiment of an outsider perspective than daniel johnston himself because daniel johnston was sort of moved by this very extreme outsider need to put out in the world this very outsider vision of the world itself it was basically outsider all the way through there there's nothing complete complacent about daniel johnston daniel johnston was was very much convinced that this sort of like vision of god and and love that he had for himself was like this this vision of of a world beyond and therefore, I think that the sort of the, the comparison, albeit it's a bit of, of, of a trip in and of itself, holds water because Daniel Johnson was the sort of singer-songwriter for this mass of people who's unable and most of the time unwilling to comply with the way life under capitalism normally works. So, so yeah, I think that the, the basic tenant is the sort of is, is both the idea that you don't have to be an acid communist ideologically to be one, and also the fact that Daniel Johnston is probably the most suitable for for this for this role, especially because he was obsessed with this psychedelic culture from the 60s that Mark Fisher was interested in when he wrote his fragment. So there's so much characteristic that sort of fit the mold that made me want to go ahead and try the the hair's eye of saying this this person is an acid communist. Oh no, excellent. I think that's an excellent application. In fact, once I had read the section on Daniel Johnston, I went to the YouTube videos. As you probably know, there's a documentary that was done on him back from 2015, which is excellent. Yeah. But I landed upon a video of him on an LSD trip. Yeah. And I think it's interesting to hear his ramblings during the LSD trip because where he does talk about escape, he also mentions the evils of the corporations that are haunting him, yeah. targeting him, and so forth, which is, I mean, it, it's tragic, especially against, you know, his unrequited love, Lori, the girl that never was his girlfriend, but I think he did call call her his girlfriend regardless. But anyway, I don't want to give away the whole book, Enrico. This is an excellent book. You have many more figures in the book that are definitely worthy of talking about. The book is The Great Psychic Outdoors, Lo-Fi Music and Escaping Capitalism out on Repeater Books. And we will probably have, hopefully have, Enrico back at some point to talk about something else, if possible. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for your time. And we will uh, we'll see you next time. We appreciate your support of The Imprint and the channel. Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. 
Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.